Greetings to all of you. I had faith in Mr. Ames <laughs> that he would not go on and on and on. <laughs> it is a privilege to be here with you. We were out at lunch yesterday with uh, Mr. Meredith and Mr. Ames, Mr. Uh, Crockett, and with Mr. Partian. As we were getting close to the end of the lunch, uh, Dr. Meredith asked, he said, uh, well, Doug, what are you going to be speaking on tomorrow? I know he likes to kid around a little bit, and I said, sin. But he was very quick to pick up. He says, well, are you for it or against it? <laughs> I figured the, the situation was getting very serious, so I better get serious. I said, I'm against it. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about sin. <clears throat> I want to talk about something else that is much more positive and much more exciting. Uh, <clears throat> a subject that I hope will be relevant to each of you, not only now, but in the future. You know, my wife uh, forwarded me something that somebody had sent to her. It was on the Internet. It was pictures of a, of a bunch of signs that you see out in front of churches. Uh, these are pretty common in the United States, uh, possibly elsewhere. But when you drive by in front of a church, there's usually a sign that talks about some thought for the day or uh, <clears throat> maybe announcing the title of the sermon that is coming for the next week. One of the titles was, As You Pass This Little Church, Be Sure to Plan a Visit, So That When At Last You're Carried In, God Won't Ask, Who Is It? <laughs> you know, to get people to think, <clears throat> and I'm trying to get you to think, too, here just a little bit today. Another uh, sign that was out in front of another church, it says, There are some questions that can't be answered by Google. In other words, you're not going to find the answers on the Internet. <clears throat> the one that I wanted to focus on today was another sign that said, let us help you study for your final exams. <laughs> it's a play on words. And the Bible indicates there's a time of judgment coming. And we're going to have to answer for the decisions that we've made, the direction that we've gone and the actions that we have partaken in. If we're going to pass our final exams, you might say the final exams of life, we've got to know the right answers to the most important questions that will be asked. You know, at the end of a class, <clears throat> at the end of a semester, we give final exams. And as you study for those final exams, you, you want to know what the important questions are that are going to be asked. And then you study the answers for those questions. You know, many people go through life without ever really thinking about or answering the most important questions that could be asked. Is there a real God? Does God really exist? You know, is the Bible the word of God? Is there a purpose for human life? Mr. Armstrong used to talk about those things all the time. We still talk about those things today. You know, I grew up attending a number of different churches, and I never recall hearing a sermon about the purpose of human life. Where I attended, it was kind of the assumption was we're all going to go to heaven if we're good, and we're going to roll around heaven all day like the song goes. <clears throat> Why did God call you? You know, you're here on a Saturday afternoon. Most everybody else in this country will be gathering in church tomorrow, those that go to church. But why are you here 
on a Saturday afternoon? Why are you here in this congregation with the living church of God? Whoever else you might be listening to this sermon down the road. Why did God call you? Just because he loves you? Or does he have a purpose in mind for you? What is he doing in your life? What is he preparing you for? These are things we really need to think about. How is God dealing with the rest of the world? Is he dealing with the rest of the world? You know, most people think, well, if you don't give your heart to the Lord right now, you're done. You're fried. You're going to hell. There's no future for you. But is that the kind of God that you and I worship? Is that the God of the Bible? Another question, where is the church that Jesus Christ founded? What happened to that church? Where did it go? How would you find it? How would you recognize it? And by the way, what's that church supposed to be doing? These are the questions that are going to be on the final exam that we're going to need to understand and have answers for. You know, for those of you that have grown up in other churches or studied about what other churches teach, one of the reasons you're probably here is you didn't find answers, satisfying answers, in the churches where you were attending. Again, I grew up believing I'd, if I'm good, I'd go to heaven. And I learned there was another answer to that question. I grew up keeping Sunday, keeping Christmas, until I learned, as you did, there are other answers to those questions. The unfortunate thing, I think, for many people today, I'm sure there are people in Haiti today asking, why did God let this happen? Why did God let this happen? Now, if we give very direct answers, people are going to think we're crazy. They're going to think we're you know, full of hate for other people. But the Bible explains why these things are happening. Dr. Pierre touched on those things. But in many cases, the world's answers leave an awful lot to be desired. In some cases, they're just wrong, totally. In other cases, the answers or the hints that are given are totally misleading. I remember watching a film a number of years ago entitled, As Good As It Gets. You may have seen it. Jack Nicholson and I believe Helen Hunt and some others. But when you think about it, as good as it gets, you've got a bigoted, angry uh, author who has psychological problems, making eyes at a waitress. She's a divorced woman, has a child or a boy that is sick. I mean, she's, she's struggling with life. And then there's a, a gay artist that he doesn't have it all together. But by the end of the movie, this bigoted author uh, gets together with this divorced woman. And somehow this, this gay guy figures into this. But it says they, uh, how did they phrase that? They learn about the sunny side of life. And you think, this is a mess. And if this is as good as it gets, <laughs> I mean, is that really what life is all about? Think about it. Is that really as good as it gets? You know, several damaged or troubled people kind of learn how to, how, to, how, to, how to deal with kind of life the way it is. And this is as good 
as it gets. Yeah, that's pathetic. Because there's a much better something to hope for, a much better future to hope for. And when you think about the message that some of these films present, would you like to be one of these characters in the film? This angry, bigoted guy? Or this lady that's struggling with a divorce and with a, a child that's sick? Or this gay artist? I mean, are these role models that you would like to follow? When you think about the role models that we're presenting to people today. You know, I grew up, and I remember reading some books in, in junior high about Daniel Boone, about Davy Crockett, about Booker T. Washington, and a number of people like that. And these were inspiring things to read. I remember reading a book about a football player. My dad wouldn't let me play football. I was too tall and too skinny. He said, you're going to get broken. <laughs> so I read books about it. And this guy made a couple mistakes. He was a good football player at a big college. But he went to a little school, standing on the sidelines. The coach says, hey, I think you're a football player. Put a uniform on. Get out here. He could run, he could kick, and he could throw. And he took that little college to the, you know, the playoffs. And that was exciting. And I would think about that, throwing a football in our neighbor's backyard. I want to be like that guy. <laughs> I practiced kicking. I practiced running. I practiced throwing. It was something that was inspiring. And now I get to share an office or to write next to an office by the guy, by the guy, yeah, share an office with the fellow who uses the name Davy Crockett. And he's got a coonskin cap on his wall. And we talk back and forth. And we, we enjoy working together. But, you know, if you have something inspiring to look forward to, this, this movie with this pathetic title, and again, I'm sorry if I'm tramping on any feet. It's kind of a heartwarming story in a way, if you like it. But when you actually think about it, is that really as good as it gets? Life has got to be better than that. It's got to be better than that. Let me ask a couple important questions here quickly. You know, is there a God? Does God really exist? You know, we publish booklets about these questions. If you want, if you want some help with your final exams, <laughs> you read the booklets and read the scriptures that go into it. As I recall, whenever I ask questions, I don't, even, I don't even remember whether I even ask questions like this, does God exist? I always assumed that he did. And whenever the subject came up, was it was just, well, do you take it on faith? You just take it on faith. I remember reading somebody, something somebody had written and said, well, I was wondering whether God exists, and I just made up my mind he exists. And that's what I was going to believe. You know, and don't confuse me with the facts. But, you know, we try and help people understand these questions. Does God exist? The proofs and promises. What is the purpose in human life? We've got another booklet entitled Your Ultimate Destiny. This is why you were born. This is what you can look forward to. You know, does God have a plan? The Holy Days, God's master plan, explains these things. You know, where is God's church? What should it be doing? We've got a couple of booklets, God's Church Through the Ages. And another one, where is God's church today? Now, I have a method in my approach here today. 
One is to let you know and remind you we have materials, answers to these questions. The other reason is that whenever we invite ministers into for a headquarters visit, we give them the opportunity of preaching a sermon in front of a television camera. And Mr. Ames and I listen to the sermon and we give them some feedback. And one of Mr. Ames' points is always you need to tie your message into not only the scriptures, but the publications. Mr. Ames is sitting on the front row this morning, <laughs> and he will give me my final exam after the sermon. <laughs> you know, we enjoy working together, but I, we also enjoy learning together. These are extremely important questions, and God has given us answers. He's given the answers to his church to explain to the world what the future really is all about. And that things do get better when we understand the big picture. So in the sermon today, I want to talk about God's plan and his purpose. And I want to focus on the methods that God is using to accomplish his purpose. I'm going to give you a more specific title further on into the sermon. But the first part I want to talk about, God and his plan and his purpose. I remember when the Worldwide Church of God came apart a number of years ago, one of the young men was writing and he said, you know, there is no plan. There is no plan. Jesus is the plan. But that's not what the scriptures say. You know, there are many people today that wonder whether God exists. And our modern educational system doesn't help a lot, especially at the college level. But not only at the college level, it starts much earlier than that, where people are told, well, you can't really know whether God exists. And when you go through an evolutionary approach to various subjects, well, there's no need for God. So our secular education system really undermines and plants an awful lot of doubts as to the existence of God. Atheists today attack the idea. I think it was Ted Turner even said, you know, Christianity is a religion for losers. Christianity is a religion for losers. You know, if you believe in God, you believe in the Bible, you're mentally deficient. There's something wrong with you. That may sound strange down here in the Bible Belt. <laughs> but intellectuals in academic circles talk this way. They think there's something wrong with you. If you actually believe in God and if you actually believe in the Bible, this, this mythical thing that contains a lot of stories. However, Psalm 53, verse 1, maybe jot that down and read about it and think about it later. David said there in the Psalms, the fool says, there is no God. The fool says there is no God. You know, what happened in Haiti, as that begins to happen in other places around the world, people are going to come to realize there is a God. And he's going to shake this world to get our attention. The attention of people that have been duped into the way of believing that there is no God. Does God have a purpose? Is there a purpose for human life? Or is there no plan? Now, I've touched on this before, but just look very quickly at the scripture in 
Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 10. Now, Isaiah is writing to people who were skeptical, who were looking over their shoulders, so to speak, at the religions of other nations, who claimed to have gods, worshipped idols, and so on. And Isaiah says this, beginning in verse 8, Remember this and show yourselves men. In other words, get real, face the facts. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other. I'm God, and there is none like me. Nobody can do this. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the outcome from the very beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. And nobody can prophesy the future like I can, God says. And then he says, my counsel shall stand. The word in the Hebrew is Esa. It means my plan, my purpose will stand. What I have said, I'm going to accomplish. I'm going to bring it to pass. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that we worship. And some people might say, well, this is an Old Testament concept. You know, we, we're New Testament Christians. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> We're actually going to be covering this in class in the next couple of weeks in the epistles class. Dr. Meredith began a series last week on Galatians, and he'll be finishing that next week. Um, I just want to touch briefly on Ephesians. Um, But notice what Paul is talking about. He's writing basically to a Gentile audience for the most part. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the God of our fathers, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blame, before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons of Jesus Christ. Now, some people today take the view that uh, if you're predestined, then God determined who you would be, what your name would be, and what you would do, even before the foundation of the world. Is that true or not? Some people believe it. When you understand the history of ideas, this idea stems from Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine in the 300s. Then John Calvin came along about a thousand years later, and he was promoting the idea that God predetermined before the very world began that you would go to heaven and that you would go to hell. But that's not what it's talking about. But a number of people believe that. When you continue reading verse 9, it says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The world doesn't understand the will and the plan of God. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, God does have a purpose. God does have a plan. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in God's time, according to his plan, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. In other words, Christ is going to come back, set up a kingdom, and eventually All those that qualify, understand, live right, make right choices, will be part of God's family. 
In verse 11, it says, talking about Jesus Christ, in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestination has to do with the plan and the purpose of God. Where do we find out about that plan and purpose? In the holy days. The holy days picture the plan and purpose of God. God predetermined that Jesus Christ would come to this earth and give his life as a sacrifice for all mankind. That was predetermined in God's plan. Then those that are called need to get rid of the sin in their life. Days of unleavened bread, putting sin out of your lives. Then comes what? Pentecost, which pictures the first fruits. God is calling a small group of people to become first fruits, to prepare them to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. This is the plan of God. And he predetermined ahead of time, I'm going to call a small group of people and prepare them to reign with Jesus Christ. So this, this, we don't have time to go through the whole subject, but this is what the Bible reveals. It's interesting, these ideas of Augustine and Calvin, John Calvin and Martin Luther, picked up some ideas linked with the Greeks that you know, God made all these decisions ahead of time, naming you by name and what you were going to do and how you were going to live your life. The Bible's not talking about that. It's talking about fitting into a plan and a purpose. That's what predestination involves. It's interesting. John Calvin had these real strong ideas. John Wesley had different ideas. Didn't agree with Calvin. Said, you're all wet. If you came out of a Presbyterian or Reformed background, you probably have Calvinistic ideas. If you came out of a Methodist church, you probably have some different ideas. We could go on and on on that, but uh, if we understand what the Bible is talking about, God does have a plan and a purpose that he's working out on this earth, and he's called you and me to be part of that. He's preparing us to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. And that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> to receive eternal life, to be part of God's family, to help bring peace to this earth, to teach people a way of life that works. This is what you've been called to become part of. And it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that is the answer to the question that's going to be on the final exam. But not everybody understands that right now. Hey, why are you called? What is God doing with you? Let's notice a couple of scriptures quickly in John 6, verse 44. And this is one of the reasons we don't spend time out on sidewalks passing out literature and trying to get people to come into church. And the reason we don't give rebates for people that tithe <laughs> you know, God has a plan, and that plan is revealed in the Scriptures. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus is talking with people that were listening to him, and they're discussing back and forth, verse 42, it says, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Isn't this the kid that lives down the street? And he's making these prophecies and these pronouncements. 
And Jesus mentions, don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. You can't really come to God unless God opens your mind, reaches into your brain, adjusts the dials, and the focus comes into play, and you actually see a big picture. I remember trying to explain certain things to my mom and dad. I was kind of like, Doug, you need to see a minister <laughs> or a psychiatrist or something. You know, you, you've fallen off the edge of the earth. Uh, th- this is weird. But, you know, in talking to other ministers, it was pretty easy to find out they didn't have answers. And many of you probably had similar experiences. They don't have the answers. But Jesus said, nobody can come to me unless they're called. This is part of God's plan. He's calling the first fruits, preparing a group of people right now. Then he gets very spiritual in the intervening verses. Has to, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. Now he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about internalizing my teachings, making them part of you to the point where you believe them. They guide your life. Verse 63 says, the words that I speak to you are spirit. In other words, they are spiritual concepts. And you've got to be being led by my spirit to understand these spiritual concepts. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that do not believe. He's talking about Judas. And then finally, in verse 65, he says, therefore, or this is why I said to you earlier, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been given or granted to that person by my Father. Unless God literally opens your mind, you're not going to understand. Now, everybody's going to have an opportunity at some point in time to understand. You're here because God has given you that opportunity now in this lifetime. The rest of the world will come to understand in the second resurrection, whenever they come back to life after the kingdom of God. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus didn't say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You didn't understand. Let, come back. Let me explain that again. He said, no, go ahead. Realizing they're not being called right now. So it's an incredible privilege to be called right now. It's an incredible privilege. To be called. Now, how is God preparing to accomplish this purpose of preparing you to reign with Jesus Christ? What methods is He using? What methods is He using to prepare you? And I want to talk about, for the rest of the sermon, really the role of education or the role that education has played in God's plan and in preparing people to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. You know, I've been involved with the church for over 40 years. I learned about the church when I was in graduate school, working on a doctor's degree. And what I've noticed over the 40 years is that within the Church of God, we've had kind of a love-hate relationship with education, especially higher education. I started attending, and several well-meaning members said, you know, you need to quit school. You need to get out. That's worldly education. That's worthless. You don't need that. You know, go get a job. You know, start washing windows, and I'm not pushing down, putting down window washers. <laughs> you say, yeah, that's, that's a waste of time where you are. Somehow that didn't quite register. 
So I think at Christmas time or a semester break, I got on a bus, went to Pasadena. And I'm walking around the campus looking, and some guy comes up, can I help you? He said, are you lost? I said, no, I don't think I'm lost. This is Ambassador College. He said, yes. I said, would you like to talk to somebody? So he took me down to the administration office. I think I talked with Dr. Meredith and with Dr. Hay. And uh, I said to Dr. Hay, I said, you know, I'd kind of like to come to Ambassador College, but I'm attending graduate school, and I've been told back there where I was attending that that was a waste of time I should quit and, and, and come out here. He said, uh, we would advise you to stay in school and get your degree. That was not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear him tell me, quit and get out of there, and it wouldn't be as much work. He said, no, we could use your degree down the road. We hope to get the college accredited. And I wound up staying for three more years, longest three years in my life. Because I was still wrestling with this concept, this is a waste of time, why am I here? And nobody told me that the more education you get, the more money you make in life. That applies to everybody except Bill Gates. <laughs> you know, there are people that are very creative. Uh, they invent things, um, <clears throat> and they make a lot of money. But by and large, the more education you get, the more training you get, the better jobs you get. So we need to think about these things and not make uh, you know, just uh, swift decisions. <clears throat> but this has kind of been my experience. I've been encouraged to... It, at a critical point in time was to stay in school, get your education, because it would be useful down the road. And I found that many of the opportunities that I've had within the church have come because of that. You know, I stayed, got an education, and God found ways of using it. So we've had kind of that relationship with education. At the same time, Mr. Armstrong started three colleges. He actually went off radio for a period of time or cut way back to get the college started in the very beginning because he realized things are going to grow, but we need people trained to be able to handle that growth. And they started Ambassador College, I think it was in the fall of 1947. And it was into the late 50s, early 60s, and into the 70s when the, the, the church exploded in terms of people coming into the church. And we were cranking out ministers, and some didn't stay. But they were able to preach for a while. They were used for a while. But as a result of Mr. Armstrong's decisions to start these three colleges, the church expanded, exploded, it grew. I think it's interesting that we've started Living University today. It's going to be interesting to see what God allows that to do. But Mr. Armstrong was following really a biblical pattern. This is what I want to illustrate with some of the sermon today. He was following a biblical pattern that others have seen in the Bible and even other church denominations have followed of establishing schools for training people so that they could serve in their particular churches. You know, what we need to understand and appreciate, the truth is precious. The truth is precious, and that truth can be lost in less than a generation if we're not training people. And that's the purpose for spokesman's clubs. It's a purpose for 
the living leadership class that we developed. It's the purpose for the advanced leadership training program. And it's the purpose for Living University to recapture true values and to promote that truth and to train individuals who understand the truth, who can then convey that truth to the world. You know, God has a plan. He's got a purpose. And he's used purposes and plans down through history. I'd like to look at these for just a little bit. We'll go quickly through the Old Testament. You know, I'm teaching class on Old Testament survey. And we survey the Old Testament. We move through it rather quickly. But it's interesting the, the examples that are there. You can take notes. You don't have to turn to all of these. But in Genesis chapter 2, God put Adam and Eve in the garden. He didn't put them downtown New York City. He didn't put them in a monastery in Italy. He put them in a garden, which is really an ideal environment to be in touch with God's creation. You know, they've done studies on hospital patients. If they look out the window and see a brick wall, they don't get better very well. But if they look out the window and they see trees and a waterfall and flowers, they get better quicker. They get better quicker. The environment does have an influence on us. I remember when I was in graduate school, I was rooming with a kid that was, grew up in downtown Chicago, lived uh, right on the lake in a high-rise apartment. We decided we wanted to room together, so we got a, an apartment on the upstairs of a little lady's house in a very uh, quiet area in Jackson, Mississippi. We had squirrels running around on the roof. We could look out the windows and hear the birds. And he, he went nuts until he got out of that apartment, got into a high-rise right next to a laundry chute, and he was in heaven because <laughs> he grew up in a different environment. He was used to different things. You know, the environment does have an influence on us. God placed Adam and Eve in a garden. That's not just a story. That's there to teach us something. I think we're going to find garden cities in the kingdom of God designed totally differently. He put two trees in the garden, symbolic of two choices. God gave people choices. He gave them a free will to make choices. John Calvin didn't understand that fully. He figured everything was set from the very beginning. But then you start asking questions. Why should we evangelize everybody if half of them are going to heaven and half of them are going to hell? Why even preach the gospel? Because it's all been figured out ahead of time. See, these things don't make sense. But God gave human beings choices. Now, before you give your children choices, what do you do? You give them instruction. If you choose this, this will happen. If you choose that, something else will happen. And then they have to make the choice. And they have to learn well, Mom and Dad said not to do it, and I did it, and wow, I'll never do that again. See, God wants us to learn. He wants us to build character. He hasn't made all our decisions for us. But God walked and talked in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. He walked and talked in the evening, the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, giving them instruction. Now, what do you do when you walk and talk with people? You talk, you ask questions, you answer questions, you give instructions. <laughs> God, why would you make that funny-looking thing on four legs with that long neck that goes way up like that? 
You get his head stuck in a tree or something, stretch his neck out. Why did you do that? And you can say, well, he was designed to nibble the leaves on the trees, keep them trimmed nicely. Again, I'm, I'm making up some things here as we go along. But, you know, God doesn't do things without a purpose. Actually, when you read about animals, wild animals, that uh, roam the savannas in Africa, they each have dietary requirements or preferences that are a little bit different. One will nibble the, the bushes on the outside. One will nibble the leaves inside. Some will, will nibble on the twigs. And then some will eat the tall grasses. Some will eat the short grasses. God designed this thing so that the environment is managed correctly. It's incredible what God has designed. But God would have an opportunity to explain to Adam and Eve, this is why I made this, this is why I made that, so what are you going to call it? You know, a giraffe you know, or something else. <clears throat> Human beings were given choices, but they were also given instructions. And they were also told there will be consequences if you make wrong decisions. And these are the same things we tell our children. God was teaching and teaching by example. Genesis chapter 12, beginning there and running really through the rest of the, <clears throat> the book of Genesis. God began working with Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 75 years old. How long did he work with Abraham? When did Abraham die? How old was he? He died when he was 175. He had 100 years of school. A hundred years of education. And he made some good decisions. He made some bad decisions. They had to deal with those bad decisions. They were blessed for the good decisions. But God worked with Abraham, preparing him to become the father of the faithful. He worked with, with Sarah. Made promises to them. But he worked with them for a hundred years. How many of you have been in the church for a hundred years? <laughs> And Mr. Party is working on things, but he's not there yet. <laughs> now, God was teaching. He took it very important. Then we go to Exodus chapter 2 with Moses. You know, I was told I was wasting my time in a worldly university. Where did Moses get his education? In Egypt, as the son of a pharaoh. And we're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that he was learned in all of the knowledge of Egypt. He was learned in all of the knowledge of Egypt. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life being educated in Egypt. History suggests that he was a general in the Egyptian army. He would have learned logistics. He would have learned command and control. He would have learned to deal with human beings, uh, giving orders, uh, being subject to orders. Forty years. Then he spent 40 more years. Now, we think we've done an awful lot. We've been in grade school and high school for 12 years and in college for only four. And then maybe graduate school for another four Moses had 40 years in Egypt, and then 40 years doing what? Taking care of sheep. 
taking care of sheep, sitting and thinking and watching and protecting and then thinking and sitting <laughs> and watching and protecting. Thinking. I used to be a general. Now look at my troops. <laughs> and then God figured, 80 years old, no retirement for you. You can't die yet. You got 40 more years to go working with a bunch of rebellious Israelites. And that was Moses' training. 40, 40, 40. He wasn't put down because he had 40 years of training in Egypt. God worked that out. He grew up and was educated in probably the leading nation on the face of the earth. And then God used him incredibly. Deuteronomy chapter 4, let's turn there because this applies to us. <clears throat> now Moses is writing, giving instructions to the second generation of the Israelites that came out of Egypt. This is a generation that saw their parents perish in the wilderness for not learning lessons. And just before the second generation enters the promised land, God told Moses, I want you to go over some basics, some instructions with these Israelites. And you can read down through the first 10 or 11 verses. It talks about, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. Again, people are being told today these statutes and judgments are Old Testament. They're old-fashioned. They don't need to be taught. They ought to be thrown away. I'll get on a roll here. <laughs> but this is what people are taught today. And yet notice what God told Moses. I teach you to observe, um, or listen to these judgments, which I teach you to observe, that you may live that you will live, that your life will go well, and that you go into the promised land which I'm giving you. Don't add to these things. Don't take away from them. Just keep them. Down in verse 6, Be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear these statutes. And they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Where did they get these laws? Where did they get these ideas of a plan and a purpose of a God that is powerful, who will watch over us and guide us, who will send his own son as a sacrifice for us? Where did they get these ideas? For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments? these incredibly righteous judgments, as in all this law that I've set before you. Now in verse 9, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget these things. Don't forget what I'm telling you. And the last line of that verse, And teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Pass these things on. This truth is precious. Pass it on to your children. Teach them lovingly carefully, persistently, patiently. Especially concerning the day which you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, in other words, when you made this agreement with me, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days of, 
or they live on the earth, that they may teach their children. So education is extremely important. And sometimes I think as parents we wonder, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? In some cases we didn't know the truth at critical times. In other cases we may have taught the truth and our children make other decisions. Don't tell me that. I don't need to learn that. I'm going to do my own thing. Now, fortunately, if God has not called some, then their opportunities will be in the future. But education has played a role in God's plan and purpose. Notice in 1 Samuel, the Israelites established their nation. They went off track. Then God sent a series of prophets to address the nation. The priesthood had gone south. The kings went off track. And it was the role of the prophets to review the plan of God, to remind the people that God does exist. He has a plan and a purpose. There are consequences when you go off track in a different direction. You know, Samuel was called as a child. We we might think sometimes, well, you know, this is my mom and dad's church. Uh, I don't have to make any decisions until I get older. But Samuel was called as a child. He was taught by Eli. He watched Eli's sons do things he knew they shouldn't do. And he saw what happened to those sons. But we've got, to, I think it's 1 Samuel 19. <clears throat> God used Samuel to raise up what is referred to in the Bible as schools of the prophets. Schools of the prophets. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 19. And verse 20 says, Saul sent messengers to take David to capture him. And when they saw a group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them. Now, we don't have a lot of information in the scriptures, but we have bits and pieces that we can put together. Samuel was a leader of these prophets. Uh, if you jump now to Second Kings, Second Kings chapter 2, it appears that Elijah and Elisha, Continued to work with these schools. Let's start in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Second Kings. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. And Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to uh, Elisha. And then down here again in verse 5, it says the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho came out to Elisha. And over in chapter 4, I believe it is, uh, it has another reference to uh, the sons of the prophets, 438, I think it is. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him there in Gilgal. It appears that Samuel established these schools for the prophets, or at least one, and then may have been multiplied later by Elijah and Elisha. But they were working with young men. I think we have a book downstairs in the library entitled The Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. And it mentions young men in their 20s and 30s were educated under a master or a teacher in schools or colleges so that they could explain God's way and explain the laws of God, and show people. God says this, you shouldn't do that. They had a very powerful mission. 
And these prophets were active then for a period of three to four hundred years as the nations of Israel and Judah were going down the tubes. But God used these people. He he used Samuel to establish these schools. Mr. Armstrong talked about this concept whenever he was putting together Ambassador College. That God has used people in the past to be trained by older men. Let's go to Ezra now, very quickly. Ezra. Ezra was sent back to Jerusalem with a very special mission whenever the Israelites were returning from their Babylonian captivity. It's interesting reading about Ezra, which we will do as soon as I can find my place. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 7. And the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon for about 70 years. And they were probably drifting off in different directions. They were living in one of the most powerful nations in the Middle East at that time that had a lot of pagan idols and other practices. A little bit about Ezra in verse 6. It says, Ezra came up from Babylon, that is up to Jerusalem. He was a skilled scribe in the laws of Moses. You know, you don't get skilled in the law of Moses by sleeping on a Bible at night. No, you study, you, you, you learn, you discipline yourself. A skilled scribe in the laws of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the God granted him all his requ- the king granted him all his request. Verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra prepared himself to teach. He knew what his job was going to be, and he prepared to do that. You know, I first started teaching whenever I was, um, I think, a second-year student, third year, maybe a second-year student in graduate school. Up until that time, I had only taken classes, listened to lectures. And I think around January 1st, the chairman of the department called four of us in. He said, uh, Winnell, you're going to be teaching this class, and somebody else, you're going to teach that class. And I thought, how do I do this? Fortunately, I was coming into the church at the same time. I was able to attend a couple of spokesman's clubs. And it gave me help, which I hadn't gotten other places. I was team teaching a class with another young, a young fellow who was not coming into the church, was not in spokesman's club. And he tried to imitate several of the teachers that we had, using great big words and uh, involved uh, instructions And in this team teaching, when he was teaching, I was in the back of the class running a projector. And then whenever I was teaching, he was in the back of the class running a projector. So I tried to make my lectures as plain and as clear as I could. And he's up there with all these great big words. And I was watching the back of the students' heads. And when he would use a great big word, they would go, What did he say? How did you spell that? What does that mean? And they would miss the next two or three or four minutes of the lecture. And I tried to be as, a, you know, as clear as I could be. And I think whenever I taught, then he taught, then I came back into the room uh, a week or so later, all these kids started to applaud. And I got embarrassed because they realized, you're going to tell us something we can understand. You're not going to try and snow us with a bunch of big words. 
And it was a really a powerful lesson to learn. But I learned it as a result of coming into the church and being able to attend several spokesman's clubs where the goal was to make it plain, make it clear, make it relevant. <clears throat> so this appears to be what Ezra actually did. He prepared his heart to study the law, to seek the law of the Lord, and then to explain it powerfully and clearly. Now let's go to Nehemiah <clears throat> and notice how this played out just a little bit later. Again, it's interesting, God has included these instructions in Scripture that are there for us to learn from if we will learn. <clears throat> Beginning in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it says, When the seventh month came, so this was when the holy days were going to be, trumpets, <clears throat> atonement, and tabernacles. Verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation of men and women and all who could hear and understand on the first day of the seventh month, Feast of Trumpets. And he read from it in an open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, at morning church, before the men and the women who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform, just like I'm standing on one here, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him, he had various people standing around him. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above the people on his platform. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord. They had a prayer. Then all the people answered and said, Amen. They agreed with what he was saying. And it goes down through here. He helped the people. Verse 7, he helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So he read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and he gave them the sense, or he gave the sense, the meaning of the words, and helped them to understand the reading. And it says a little bit later, people rejoiced. They said, this is great. This is wonderful. You're helping us to understand the word of God. If we can project ahead, when the Israelite nations come out of captivity, back to Jerusalem, back to wherever other places God brings them. Someone's going to be there to begin explaining this is the truth. This is why these things happened. This is where the world is going to go from here. This is what the kingdom of God is going to be all about. You're, you're Israelites. You're, you're spiritual Israelites in many cases. God wants to use you to help project and promote this way of life all around the world. If we can grasp that vision, we're not going to go sit in heaven and roll around all day up there and play harps and sit on clouds and do stuff like that. We're going to have an opportunity to work with Jesus Christ and bringing peace to this earth. You're rebuilding cities, reorienting educational systems, you're restructuring families, founding educational systems based on the Word of God. See, that's about as good as it gets. <laughs> that's what it's all about. That's why we're here. You know, Daniel is a young man. Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and his friends were carried off to Babylon. They were bright young men. The king of Babylon noticed that, and they were educated in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
know, the king of Babylon, he said, I'm going to use these guys, but they've got to be educated first. So they had a worldly education, but God used them powerfully then. You know, we just we study the prophecies that God gave to Daniel, many of which deal with our time. And some people would say, well, this is all Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that. But if you look at the New Testament briefly, in Luke chapter 22, <clears throat> or Luke, Luke chapter 2, it, verses 41 through 47, you know, Jesus was taken every year by his parents up to Jerusalem. And when he was 12, he sat down in the temple began asking questions of the religious leaders that threw them for a loop. Look at this kid, 12 years old. Did you see what he asked? Do you know what the answer to that is? I forget. (laughs) A 12-year-old child was asking questions of religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they didn't know the answers to. Matthew 22, verse 29. As an adult... Jesus challenged some of the religious, religious leaders. He said, you don't know the scriptures and you're a leader in Israel? Christ knew the scriptures. He was taught those things by his parents. It would be interesting to find out who else may have been his teachers. You know, we don't know for sure. When Jesus began calling his disciples, he worked with them for about three, three and a half years, walking and talking and teaching and explaining. They watched him teach. They watched him heal. He was their role model. He was their example. And you notice in Luke chapter 9, maybe just turn there quickly, Luke chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus was laying the foundation for a work that was going to grow. A work that was going to grow. Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Then he called his twelve disciples together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So here we find twelve of them being sent out. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 10 and verse 1 of Luke, After these things the Lord appointed seventy others, and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus saw the need. Mr. Armstrong saw the need. I think Mr. Meredith saw the need also. The harvest is great. We need more laborers, all kinds of laborers, to do the work of God today. You know, if we had a sudden influx of 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 people, we would scramble. We would scramble to try and serve that number. You know, we need laborers. We need people willing to devote themselves to understand and explain the Word of God, men and women. You know, my daughter-in-law is here today, and I'm going to embarrass her. <laughs> you know, they're homeschooling their children up in Wyoming when they were up there. They had, uh, I think, little weekly meetings with other people that were homeschooling. I think one year before they went to the feast, uh, Dinah said something about, I'm not going to be here for the next week or two, and where are you going? Well, we're going to be keeping a church uh, meeting. What, what kind of church meeting? 
what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? Why do you do that? You can never tell when you're going to be asked to explain what it is that you believe and explain it in a convincing way, a powerful way. And God's going to be able to use you if you're prepared. In Acts 4.13, the apostles were preaching. People noticed, you know, these guys aren't educated in rabbinical schools. You know, they don't have degrees from Harvard uh, or wherever it might have been at that time. But notice what they did say, Acts 4.23. And that's not the scripture that I want. No, 4.13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, in other words, they had not been apparently to rabbinical schools, uh, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. These are the guys. They're walking around the countryside with Jesus. That's where they got these ideas. That's where they're speaking with the conviction. See, they were trained for some three years. You know, Paul was used by God, a very highly educated individual. He only wrote 14 books in the New Testament. God called him for purpose. Called him for purpose. Paul came from Tarsus. It was a seat of a major university there. And you find Paul quoting Greek poets. He was familiar with literature. But he could use those things at a certain point in time. He was trained by Gamaliel in Jerusalem, who was probably the leading rabbi of the time. But on top of that, who else trained him? Jesus Christ. For three and a half, about three years in Arabia. Read that in Galatians. So, you know, God prepared people. You might think, how is he preparing you? Maybe pray about it. God, why, what are you doing with me? <laughs> what do you want to do with me? How can I be malleable clay in your hands? You know, so that you can, you can use me in your time and in your way. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, when Paul goes to Ephesus, he preached for a while, and then he wound up preaching for about two years in a school owned by a fellow by the name of Tyrannus. This may have been a person that was favorable to him, um, but he spent two years teaching in that area, probably working with people. And when you read what happened with Paul's preaching in Ephesus, you know, Ephesus was... Uh, the site of this big temple of Diana, Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. And when you read about some of the descriptions, they say, well, I've seen the pyramids and I've seen these other things, but man, this temple of Diana is something else. It sat on a foundation that was 400 feet by 200 feet. That's bigger than the football field. It had columns 60 feet high, which meant the top of the roof was probably 80 or 90 feet into the air. That was awesome. And people coming into the harbor, look at that! They were involved with magic and prostitution, all kind of stuff like that. But before Paul was done, people were smashing their idols and, and burning up their magic books. <laughs> he had an incredible impact on that city. 
And that region, I think one of the sources said there were something like 230 cities within the vicinity of Ephesus. He had an incredible impact. He'd been preaching there in this school for two years. If we jump ahead in time, Revelation 2 and 3, to the church of Thyatira, just as an example, this appears to fit in history from around 1000 A.D. to about 1500 A.D. The Waldensians, a group of people in northern Italy, appear to have been active during this period of time and are probably members of the true church among these people. Apparently some people among the Waldensians kept the Sabbath, maybe some of the holy days. We don't know all the details. What we do know, and most of the history comes from the Inquisitors, people that uh, were actually persecuting the Waldensians. We know that these people uh, were against worshiping idols. They were against the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church. They um, were against confession, against purgatory. They didn't believe in purgatory. They didn't believe in praying for the dead. They did not believe in worshiping relics, and these cathedrals in the Middle Ages were full of these things. They didn't believe in bowing before crosses. They believed that Rome was the harlot of the book of Revelation. (laughs) Is it any wonder why the Catholic Church went after these people? As I mentioned, it appears that some kept the Sabbath, may have kept the holy days, dietary laws. It appears that God's people were among these people. But whenever the Clores and, and I were up in northern Italy and then went up to Geneva, we got into the library there, found a book that was fairly recent, and said uh, many of these Waldensians decided to join the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. They had a week-long meeting there in northern Italy and said towards the end of the week, the views of the younger ministers prevailed. And they joined the Protestant Reformation. They kept Sunday. They basically bought into the teachings of Protestantism at that time. Not everybody. It was interesting to see what happened when I read those words. It was almost like this is what happened in the worldwide church of God. The views of the younger ministers prevailed. And they got rid of the Sabbath. They got rid of the holy days. The candlesticks changed. The Waldensian church now in Italy is linked with the Methodist church. There is Sunday-keeping church over there. We have a Waldensian Presbyterian church up in Valdez, just north of here. We stopped by one day with Mr. Meredith, and he started asking questions. He says, do you people keep Easter? And they said, of course we do. (laughs) Do you keep Sunday? Yes, of course we do. They've lost the truth that they had. They've lost the truth that they had. Truth is precious. And unless it is persevere, unless we persevere with that and promote it, it's going to be lost altogether. What's interesting is the Waldensians operated colleges. They operated colleges. They were little places. When we were up there, we drove way up into one of these uh, very hard-to-get-into valleys. um, Pradel Tor, I believe it is. Pradel Tor. Is right upstream from the um, <clears throat> Torpalici, which is a little town. It has to do with a tower. But we walked up there, and it's a little sign that says college this way. And when you go up to the college, it was a hut, a little house. 
The table was a big slab of rock. You probably get maybe four, five, six people around it. That was their college. They would get snowed in in the wintertime, and all they had to do was memorize the scriptures. And then they sent people out two by two, a younger man and an older man, many of whom were not married or didn't marry because of the dangers that they would face, not because they believed in celibacy. It just it would be a tough job. But they had an impact all through northern Italy, southern France, up into the Balkans, up into Germany, over into France, even up into England. And they were preaching that the Catholic Church was the harlot of Revelation, that you don't pray for the dead, that you don't bow down to idols. And it appears that some of them kept the Sabbath for a while. And Mr. Armstrong was aware of these examples. And he started Ambassador College, not only one, but three colleges, to prepare people to serve in the work of God. And we sent people out two by two, explaining the truth of God. You can read, I believe it's in Acts 17 or 18, where the preaching of the apostles did what? They were, they were turning the world upside down. Turning the world upside down, and so did we. We were the biggest purchasers of radio, radio religious time in the world. What attracted people's attention? We were preaching about the Sabbath. And it was changed by the Roman church in the 300s. To Sunday, Jesus Christ was not born on Christmas. Easter is a pagan holiday. We're not going to heaven. We're going to be... Ruling with Jesus Christ on this earth in the coming kingdom of God. And as we get more powerful for that message, we are going to rattle the cages of this world. People are not going to like it. But we've got a mission. Not only to go to the world, but to preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the young men that took over the Worldwide Church of God said, that's a bunch of baloney. There's no evidence. But there is evidence. If you're willing to do a little bit more research than punch a button and look at Google. You know, very powerful evidence that is there. And part of our job is to explain this, to teach this, to train others to do that. And that's going to be about as good as it gets. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be challenging. But there's also a reward that's going to come. There's also a reward that's going to come for doing that. Let me just finish. We're on time. <clears throat> you know, our job is to preach the gospel of a coming kingdom of God to this world, to reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why have we been blessed so incredibly in this country? because of the obedience of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But we're going to lose those blessings. And our people need to understand why. And God is going to make that very plain and clear before it's all over. We're to be preparing a people, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, to prepare a people to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth. These people, you and me, are going to need to understand how to explain the laws of God, why we keep the Sabbath, 
why we keep the holy days, that the holy days picture the plan of God. You're going to have to be able to explain with conviction, this is a way of life that works. This is a way of life that will bring peace to this earth. These prophecies are real. They're going to come to pass. I think we're talking just recently where Mr. Armstrong was giving a sermon. He said, you don't have to believe me. These prophecies are going to come to pass whether or not you believe me. And we need to be able to speak with the same power. Part of our challenge today is we're going to have to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Because there are a lot of people running around today that don't believe what we're preaching. They don't believe what the Bible actually says. They have a different take on the whole thing. And we're going to have to be able to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. Let me give you three scriptures in closing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter is telling his audience to grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To grow. We can't just sit... Dr. Germano told me years ago, he says, you know, you can't just sit in one place. You can't just sit in one place. You either go forward or you're going backward. You can't just sit in one place. If we just sit doing nothing, we'll wind up going backward because everything else will move ahead. So Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He was young people and as adults. Maybe thinking about the future, ask yourself, where would I like to be in five years? Where would I like to be in five years? Where would I like to be in ten years? What would I like to do in the coming kingdom of God? What would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? What can you prepare for now? If you've got some time on your hands, maybe read about designing cities. Read about agriculture. Read about education. What works, what doesn't work. Prepare for what's coming. Ephesians chapter 5, let's turn to that quickly. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, I think it is. Verse 15 and 16 says, See that you then walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. In other words, walk carefully, walk accurately, live purposefully, live diligently, redeeming the time, making the most of the opportunities that you have, because the days are evil. In the trips that I've done in and out of East Africa... Over there for a period of time anyways, unless the parents could afford shoes and a uniform, their kids couldn't go to school. They just didn't have that opportunity. I've had ladies come up to me and say, I've got a really bright little girl or a bright young boy. Could you help me? Because I can't afford to send them to school. We have free schooling in this country. We've been have all these educational materials that the church has created. I think God's going to ask us one of the days, what did you do with the opportunities that you had? And I ask myself that too. What are we doing with the opportunities that God has given us? 
You know, Paul was mentioning here, redeem the time, make the most of the time and the opportunities that you have. You travel some at the feast as you have opportunities. Keep your eyes open. Learn the lessons that are there to be learned. Take advantage of the classes that we're offering through Living University and the booklets that we have to study. Ask God, how can you use me, God, to bear fruit, to accomplish your purpose, to accomplish your mission? Mold me, fashion me, make something out of me. Take advantage of the opportunities that you have. Final scripture in 2 Timothy 2. Final scripture, 2 Timothy 2.15. <clears throat> Again, Paul is giving Timothy advice, <clears throat> guidance, direction, which is certainly applicable to us today. Let's begin in verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive, not to argue about words to no profit. Don't get into arguments that just go round and round and round in circles. To the ruin of the hearers. But be diligent. And the word can be translated study or be eager uh, or diligently study to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, correctly explaining the word of truth, but shun or avoid profane and vain babblings. Don't get involved in these theories and ideas that don't take you anywhere. Stay close to the trunk of the tree. Be able to explain the word of God. Be a living example to other people. And let God use you. Because as I said in the very beginning, God has a plan. He has a purpose that he's working out on this earth. You have been called to understand that plan and to understand that purpose, not just for your own entertainment, but to help turn this world right side up, to bring peace to this world and to point people to Jesus Christ and the coming kingdom of God. And that's as good as it gets.